My name is Dwight. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to share God's word with you this morning. I'm getting a little feedback here. Is that better? All right, great. Well, would you bow with me in a word of prayer, and let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word this morning. Lord, thank you for your very real presence in this place by your spirit. Thank you for your word, which is really true. Thank you for the way that through your spirit and through your word, you meet us in the realities of life, in the realities of things that we're going through, the reality of our pain. And we thank you that your truth and your presence makes a real, tangible difference. So I pray that you would once again prove that to be true even here in our midst this morning. And may you further confirm it in our own hearts, bringing comfort to our own hearts, but not only for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our city, that we might be agents and heralds of the good news of comfort and hope that are found in Jesus and in him alone, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, it was national news, so I'm guessing many of you have heard about the near-death experience of an NFL player named Damar Hamlin. Uh, he fell into cardiac arrest after a hit, and uh, the doctors, I, I heard physicians say, if your heart is struck at just the right instance, uh, it'll actually stop it. And that's what happened. He went into cardiac arrest. And thank God that he recovered and he's doing well. Uh, but for a while, that wasn't a given. It was not a given. And the country, of course, everyone on the field, the country, all the sports commentators, everyone was in shock. Uh, you could sense the fear, the deep, deep concern, whether he was going to make it or not. And so these broadcasters, they're, they're sitting there on live television and they have to say something, right? They cut away from the game and it's like, what do we say now? And so I actually wanted to show you a clip. I hope it works. If not, it's okay. I have the quote written. But it's from a, a, a commentator named Nick Wright. And it's during this uh, NFL show called First Things First, which the irony is someone's nearly dead and football is far from the first thing first that should be first. But in any case, that's the name of the show, First Things First. And here's what Nick Wright had to say about the incident. Just an inexplicable, terrifying event. And it made me in the moment, I got to say, bro, two of the closest people in the world to me, my wife and you, my partner for years, are deeply religious people. And I, I'm not. And it made me a little envious in that moment and since then that I didn't have like that foundation of there's, there's a... I don't want to say a greater purpose or a higher power or something, because I feel like at times like this, when there's an inexplicable tragedy, you're almost flailing about, like, why, why did it happen to this kid in this moment? And then you learn he's such a good kid. I don't know if any of that made sense to the audience. I hope it did. Um, but that's how I was feeling watching something we'd never seen on an NFL field. It's a very powerful moment that struck me, which is why I want to share it with you, too, because you see someone here who basically claims to have no faith, uh, Nick Wright here, doing what he just described, 
right? Flailing about as he's talking. He's actually literally like flailing. You can see him reaching for, for answers, for reasons, for some kind of ground to stand on and, and struggling because he doesn't feel like he really has one, a, a foundation to stand on in the midst of when tragedy happens. Well, as Christians, we believe that such a foundation exists, that there is a real peace, that there is a real comfort to be found in times of tragedy and pain. And our passage today reminds us and reveals some very important truths to us that fuel this very comfort and peace. So I want to draw out four truths that we see in our text this morning in the raising of Lazarus that bring us comfort in our pain, and they are as follows. Uh, Jesus loves us in our pain. Jesus uses it. Jesus shares in it, and Jesus redeems it. All right, so again, Jesus loves us in it. He uses it. He shares it, and he redeems it. And just real quick aside to our youth, I know uh, a big problem people ask, or maybe your friends, if there's a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? And I hope some of the things I share this morning can help you too, as you perhaps have questions for yourself or even engage your friends. All right, so first of all, Jesus loves us in it. Mary and Martha were sisters who trusted and loved Jesus sincerely. And they, along with their brother Lazarus, were close with Jesus, and they even invited him to use their home as a base for ministry. It's very close to this family. Lazarus falls gravely ill, and so the sister sent this message to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And verse 5 explicitly makes clear, quote, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, end quote. You see, you and I are afforded the luxury of hearing John narrate these events for us. But I want us to try and take a moment to appreciate what Mary and Martha must have experienced in real time. Right? Being in their shoes. Mary and Martha knew Jesus had the power to heal their brother. They, he had healed other people. So they knew he had the power to heal their brother if he wanted to. They also knew Jesus had acted promptly in other situations when people asked for help. In healing of Jairus' daughter, Luke chapter 8. In the raising of a widow's son. In the middle of a funeral procession, someone calls to him for help. And he stops and he goes he did that for strangers. So it would certainly make sense for them to assume Jesus would surely rush to our aid. Jesus would surely come running when our family was in need. Our family who he's particularly close to. But we read in verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. In their most desperate time of need, Jesus delays purposely. He does not show up in time. And can you imagine what that felt like for Mary and Martha? How jarring, how disappointing, how painful that in itself was on top of the pain they'd already experienced. Perhaps some of you don't even need to imagine because maybe some of us are going through a season right now where that is what you're going through exactly. You're disappointed with God. 
You're wrestling with God over unanswered prayers because he didn't seem to show up. C.S. Lewis wrote a very raw and honest reflection on his thoughts and feelings when his wife died of cancer. I think they were only married for three years before she died of cancer. Writes a very raw and honest uh, description of what he was going through. And he says this, quote, When you are happy, so happy, you have no sense of needing him, God. If you remember yourselves and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Even the great C.S. Lewis defender of the faith struggled in that way, felt that tension. You see, as human beings, we are meaning makers. We're created with meaning and purpose, and therefore it's not surprising we try to find meaning and purpose in our lives and in our pain. And you hear that in Nick Wright. There he is on live TV trying to make sense of things, flailing and grasping for, how could something like this happen? This guy's a good dude. Why do things like this happen in the world? That's our tendency. We all do it. We try to make sense of things that happen to us in life. And more specifically, as Christians, we try to make sense of God and what God is doing in our life or what God is not doing in our life and why he is or is not doing those things. And we try to draw out conclusions. But the problem is we're trying to draw out these conclusions based on such partial, incomplete information. Given the events of Lazarus' death, Mary and Martha could have concluded, based on appearances, well, maybe Jesus does love us, but maybe he isn't all that powerful. Like, maybe this one, this situation's a little too hard for him. Or perhaps Jesus has the power to heal. We've seen it happen. But maybe he's not as close to us as we thought. Maybe he's not as for us as we assumed. Maybe he's upset with us. Or maybe he saw something in us where our faith is deficient and lacking. And if we just had a little more faith, maybe he would have came and healed. So maybe it's something we did wrong. But you see, none of that was true. Jesus had his own reasons for delay, which we'll see more of in a moment. But what we can be sure of In this passage, his delay was not because of a lack of love. And that's why John explicitly tells us from the get-go, now Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. You see, our minds are so finite. Our perspective is so finite and so limited And so the way to find comfort when you're going through pain and and trials and tribulation is not to try to make sense of things by your own reason with the very partial information you have. Trying to make, make sense through the haze will often lead you to crashing into the rocks on the shore. Where is the light of truth? 
Well, we believe there is truth. The way to comfort is not trusting in your own reason, but looking to God's revelation. What has God revealed? What has he said? And here's the thing. God doesn't tell us everything we want to know. We wish he did. Why did this have to happen? Why did I have to go through this? Why did this person, why did this person have to go? Why did my love? We want to know. But I'd say the majority of what we want to know, we will never know, at least on this side of eternity. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but he has told us everything we need to know. He's revealed it clearly. Everything you need to know, he's made clear. He's made explicit. Revealed in his word. Specifically, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ when you're going through the worst things in your life? Can't make sense of anything, but here's what you can make sense of. Here's what is clear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor angels, death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us From the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Take that to the bank. Regardless of appearances, that is always true for those who trust him. Second, Jesus uses our pain. As believers, Martha and the way she reacts to her brother's death serves as a reflection of ourselves. Let me explain. Martha understood Jesus had a special relationship with God the Father. This is why she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She gets it. She gets he's not just the prophet. Just She recognized there's something unique and special and extraordinary about Jesus and his relationship with God the Father. Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. And she responds by saying, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So you sense this kind of tension and even maybe some confusion in her. On one hand, she says, I know whatever you ask from God, even now, he's going to do for you. It's kind of a way of expressing Everything's possible. All things are possible. I know there's something powerful about you, but most likely, I'm never going to see Lazarus again on this side of eternity. All things are possible for you, but I'm probably not going to see him again until the day we're all resurrected. To which Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die yet, Shall he live? And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is simply saying, it's not that I'm just able to resurrect people. Just one of the things I can do, an ability that I have. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Meaning, I'm the source of it. It doesn't happen apart from me. 
It's like uh, I use the illustration when, when Steve Jobs was alive. I'm, a, I'm an Apple fanboy. And when Steve Jobs was alive, it would be insufficient to stay, say of Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs makes Apple products. I mean, that's true, but it's a lot more than that. Instead, we could say Steve Jobs is Apple. The vision, the ideas, the approach, it was all built on him, which was sadly proved true after his passing. Apple's never been the same. Jesus doesn't just do resurrections. He is the resurrection. He is life. And so when Jesus says, do you believe this, Martha? Martha responds saying, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. In other words, she gives a doctrinally true statement, a doctrinally, theologically accurate statement. And yet we get the sense, even in these words, that she believes that truth somewhat in an abstract way. Or we could say, like, she's sincere about it, but it's shallow. Her reaction in verse 39 and following cues us in on this. When Jesus instructs them to take the stone away, what does Martha say? Oh, he's going to resurrect him. No, she says, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an odor. He's been dead for four days. So you see, even though she gets that there's something powerful and special about Jesus, she still doesn't get just how powerful he actually is. And it's in that way Martha serves as a mirror to us because you and I, we believe truths about God sincerely. That's why you're here this morning. But a lot of times you believe, you and I, we see these doctrines and these principles and these truths and we sincerely believe them, but oftentimes in abstraction, oftentimes in a very shallow way. We will believe in the power of Jesus sincerely, but in a very shallow way. We believe and understand that we are weak and need a savior, but in a very shallow way. We believe Jesus forgives, but we really don't understand the magnitude of his forgiveness. Which is why so many of us continue to live in shame and beating ourselves up in self-hatred. Because out of one side of your mouth, yeah, yeah, Jesus forgives. And, and you kind of mean it. You do mean it. You're not lying. But the weight of it, it's not as substantial as it could be. We believe Jesus satisfies our heart. We sing about it. But we really don't understand how deeply that is true. Oftentimes we know truth, but not the power and experience of that truth in your life. And so how does Jesus move you from that place of limited abstract knowledge to substantially, experientially knowing through a great sermon? I wish, but <laughs> often not. An event? Often not. Mostly, God does it by using pain. By using painful things in your lives 
Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Amen, right? We'd all say, Amen! To share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Ooh, I don't like quoting that line as much. But you see, those two things are inseparable. You want to know the power of the gospel in your life? You want to know the power of resurrection life? It ain't happening apart from hardship and suffering and lots of tears. I've referenced before Saul, Scott Saul's book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, how some of the most beautiful and godly people you know in this life, the ones that you look to and you say, man, I want to follow, I want to be like them, peel the layer back and I guarantee you, you will find beneath there deep, deep pain, deep suffering they've experienced. Jesus isn't the one that causes you pain. His ultimate existence is the result of human sin and rebellion. And yet, Jesus is able to use the pain in this world to move us from an abstract, limited, theoretical knowledge about him to a truer, deeper, experiential knowledge of him. Again, from A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, he writes, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using the rope to tie a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice or a cliff. Wouldn't you then discover how much you really trusted it? Theoretically, you can say and you can believe God will provide for me. How are you going to discover that deeply? When you're in desperate need. Theoretically, you can say, I believe God is my strength. But how will I discover that more deeply? Until he strips you of all of your strength. And you have nothing. You are on empty. You are on fumes. Theoretically, I know Christ is my treasure. But how are you going to discover that more deeply? By suffering the loss of things you thought you couldn't live without. You never know he's all you need till he's all you have. Pain, suffering, hardship are things that, especially as Americans, we go out of our way to avoid at every possible cost. But in the hands of Jesus, it's precisely what he uses to bring you deeper into him. Or perhaps for some of you for the first time. And the more deeply you are brought into him and know him, the more you actually experience true life. Because he is the resurrection and the life. And the more you become the kind of person that says yes. Like it comes out different when you say, Christ is enough for me. My 18-year-old self, I led worship songs in my 20s. Christ is enough for me. Come on, church, sing it. But how I say that at 46 years old today is very different. It's very different. Not because of my age, because age alone doesn't automatically mean you're going to go wiser and more spiritual. There's a lot of foolish old people. <laughs> it's a lot of scars. It's by way of hardship, by way of struggle. 
Third, Jesus shares in our pain. Verses 32 to 35, we see Mary, Lazarus' other sister, come to Jesus, falls at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And one of the most powerful and shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. You know, whenever we talk about this principle of how Jesus works through our pain, he's sovereign over our pain and he has a good purpose in our pain, Sometimes we can almost have this image in our minds as, as if God is like up pulling levers and okay, car accident right now, bang, there you go, unemployment for you, and just kind of pressing buttons in your life, kind of cold and detached. We wonder if God really understands. Do you know what it's like to go through this? How difficult it is down here the reality of pain. Perhaps you felt the sting of unanswered prayer requests as Mary did. Lord, if you had been here. Lord, if you could have stopped this from happening to me. Lord, if you could have stopped this from happening to my family, but you didn't. How could you let this happen? Do you know how hard this is? And this passage answers that for us. Yes, he does appreciate how hard it is. We have a weeping God. He's going to la raise Lazarus in a minute. But he weeps. Because he is deeply moved by their pain and yours. Not only does Jesus... Oh, let me just quickly say there too. It's okay to weep, right? Because in some spiritual circles, they'll say, oh, faith, if you're a person of faith, then stiff upper lip. No, I believe everything will be all right. That's unbiblical. The Psalms, an entire book of the Bible, is filled with weeping and crying and bringing honest struggle to God. We are made in his image including our emotional life. You're not just a mind and a body. You have emotions. You have feelings created by God, meant to be expressed and brought to God. Not only does Jesus get our pain, he gets it better than us. He gets it better than us. How is that? For one, his role as creator. Yes, he's fully man, but he was fully God. Creator of all things, and when he made all things, he said, it is good, it was perfect. Talked about this on Christmas, this idea of shalom. Everything was perfectly weaved together, and with the fall of humanity and sin, that fabric is just shredded. And so, as he looks at the world around us and he sees pain and suffering and injustice and evil and he sees his creation desecrated, he hurts more than we do. Imagine a masterpiece 
in an art, art museum and, and someone goes up to the art, the, and this has kind of been happening actually, you see people throwing paint and taking a knife and ripping the masterpiece. I mean, even for us as people who just enjoy the piece, that's like, oh, ow! How much more the artist when his creation is defaced? Jesus, or Lord, gets our frustration, gets the ugliness of sin and its consequences and pain. But not just that, Jesus not, was not only in the Godhead part of creation, there's another reason why he understands our pain better than we do, and that's because his role as the suffering Savior God didn't just weep over a broken world. What did they do to my creation? He lived in it. He took on flesh. And in his flesh, he experienced the full range of our suffering. You know what it is to be poor? Frankly, most of us don't. Not deep poverty. But he does. To go without food and to actually have hunger pain? He does. Thirst. Excruciating physical pain. A victim of injustice. His body abused. Abandoned. Betrayed by his closest, closest inner circle. The full range of human emotion, human experience, human suffering, he experienced it all. And on top of that, he experienced a level of pain no one ever will. You see, because in his unique role as the God-man, the reason he came is in fact, as we said earlier, sin entered this world, suffering entered this world when man rebelled against God, including us. And instead of pouring the, the judgment and wrath deserved for our sin upon us, Jesus says, Father, I will take it upon myself. And so the cumulative wrath deserved for not just individuals, generations of believers through the ages, at one singular moment, he experienced all of that the white-hot fury of God at evil on his own. That is a pain no one will ever understand. He did it in our place. So you have a God, you have a Savior as a creator and as a Savior who knows what hurt is, who knows what pain is, to an even greater degree than you and I do. And because he willingly, willingly, he didn't have to, but willingly chose to, to share in that pain and endure that unique pain of his saving work, for all of you who trust him, you can be assured when you go through your versions of pain and suffering, you can know without a shadow of a doubt, I am not abandoned right now, it feels that way, but I surely know he's not abandoned me because on the cross he was already abandoned in my place. 
I can know for sure this is not payback. This is not karma like the world so often says. Do good things and good things will go back to you. Do bad things and bad things will come back. It's not karma when I go through pain and suffering and terrible things. It's not about payback because Christ has already paid it all in my place. It's not that. Earlier we said God uses painful things for his good purposes. When Lazarus, Jesus heard Lazarus was dying, he tells his disciples that he's going to allow Lazarus to die instead of rushing to heal him. Why? For the disciples to see the glory of Jesus, for Mary and Martha to experience a far greater glory of Jesus, for a bunch of bystanders who would be there to experience the glory of Jesus. In verse 42, it says, many of them came to believe because of what they saw. He was up to so much more, but here's the thing. They didn't see that. And as we're going through it, we don't see those purposes. We don't see the whys. Mary and Martha were not told beforehand this is what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. We don't know the exact reasons of why things happen. We're not given all the explanations. But here's what you're given. You're given a God who hung on a cross for you and says, as confusing as everything is, you can trust me. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to read it to you twice. And Christians, you know this. We know this is what the scriptures teach. God is too good to be unkind. You know, when you're going through stuff in your life, not because he's mean, not because he's... God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And so when we cannot trace his hand, I don't know what's going on. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And he proved that heart on the cross. Lastly, Jesus redeems our pain. Verses 43 to 44, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! A lot of commentators say they had to say, he had to say Lazarus because all the dead would have came. Me? Right? So he had to specify, no, 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 for now, just Lazarus, come out! And it says, the man who came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine the emotional whiplash here? Like one moment, everyone's wailing. I mean, even we, I'm guessing we've, by this age, most of us have been to funerals. They're heavy. But here's the thing. Middle Eastern funerals in this time, they would actually hire professional wailers because it was a way of honoring someone of importance. And they were actually a wealthier family. So for Lazarus, it's likely that there's a bunch of professional wailers adding to the volume, screaming and crying out, and people are genuinely wailing, and they, they want to keep that wailing going because that's a way of, again, honoring and appropriately grieving this person's life in that culture. It was a loud, emotional situation. 
And then all of a sudden, imagine they see him come out of the tomb. And those tears in Mary and Martha's eyes go from tears of being absolutely emotionally devastated and gutted to tears of disbelief and joy. My brother, are you serious? A complete whiplash, a complete reversal from devastating sadness to incomparable joy. And the reason why this picture is so beautiful is because it's what's going to happen for you too. For all who trust in the name of Jesus. Because you see, Lazarus' resurrection was simply an illustration pointing forward to the resurrection of Jesus and to all who believe in him. It's also why scholars say that might have been part of the reason why he's crying. He's staring at the tomb and he's like, I'm going to be on the other side of that stone. But he did it for our sake. And he came out of it. And all who trust in him, like Lazarus, your life will be defined one day by a complete whiplash reversal. And here's the thing. When, when, when God brings you into his kingdom, it's not just that the tears cease and the pain ceases. I mean, that's great. No more pain. No more suffering. No more heart. That's great. But actually, the news is even greater because it's not just that those things stop. Your pain, your suffering actually are transformed into joy. And that's what makes the gospel so very beautiful and powerful. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Again, Paul writes, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a concept and, and, and an idea that we talk about every Easter, but I think we need to talk about it all year because it's one of the most beautiful truths that will comfort your soul when you're going through the worst of things. That no matter how bad that thing is, every specific thing you suffer will somehow, in a way that's inconceivable to us, and almost sounds cruel coming out of my mouth, because especially when the pain runs that deep, it's hard, it's hard to even try and get there. But the truth of the script, the scandalous truth of the gospel is that the worst things in your life, every single one of them, are going to end up serving your eternal joy. Psalm 56, 8 has become for me one of my favorite psalms. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. Why is he keeping track of our sorrows? What would be the point of watching every tear and keeping track of every tear? Well, I believe it dovetails with 2 Corinthians here. It's because each tear is collected and will be like a currency traded in, each one redeemed for a glory and unimaginable joy in Jesus and because of Jesus. Just the other uh, uh, Christmas, I, sh I shared this image with 
the Japanese art of kintsugi, where you take a shattered pottery, melt it back to, together with gold, and precisely because it was broken and stitched back together, it has an even greater and unique beauty to it than it would have had if it were never broken in the first place. And so it will be with our lives that the brokenness you really, all of us want to push back against, I never want to go through that, but sometimes you have to go through under the loving hand of our Savior. One day we'll all be able to look back and dare, we'll, we'll be able to say, dare I say, but it's true. I'm better for having gone through it. There is a greater glory to be seen now, a greater glory revealed, a greater beauty, and a greater joy that has arisen precisely because I went through it. This is the power of Jesus. He loves you in your pain. He uses your pain. He shares in your pain. One day soon, he will redeem all of your pain. Let's pray. Uh, just in closing, I recognize for some of us, you're not maybe